Psychological resilience is described as the ability to cope mentally or emotionally with a crisis and then, ideally, to return to a pre-crisis state. Resilience is all the rage these days, especially in productivity circles, mental health communities, and even in education. It's easy to see why. Developing resilience as a skill, becoming more resilient as individuals, can help us to live more whole and healthy lives. Resilience may be one key to persevering through trials and tribulations, and even to making the change we want to see in the world. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may help shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. We're joined today by Kate Lund, Doctor of Psychology. Dr. Kate is a licensed clinical psychologist of nearly 20 years. She's a peak performance coach, a best-selling author, and a TEDx speaker. Her specialized training in pediatric medical psychology includes world-renowned Shriners Hospital for Children, Boston, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, all of which are affiliated with Harvard Medical School. Dr. Kate uses a strengths-based approach in working with students, athletes, parents, and teams to improve their mental game in school, in sports, and in life while helping them to reach their fullest potential. As a former collegiate tennis player, Kate has a special interest in working with athletes who are recovering from injury, helping them to cope and maintain their mental edge. Dr. Kate, welcome to The New Story Is. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dave. I really appreciate it. So, Dr. Kate, I, I gave my best attempt to define resilience and the value of resilience at the top of the show, as you just heard. I wonder if you can help me out, though. From your clinical uh, psychological point of view, what do you see as the, the definition of resilience? How would you define resilience? Sure, absolutely. That's such a great question, right? And so at the most sort of foundational level, resilience is very similar to what you said, the ability to move through and beyond challenge, to bounce back when something goes wrong. But one thing is that's important to think about here is it's important to be able to do this within our own unique context, right? So it's not really a one size fits all. The way that we're going to live resilience will look different for all of us based on our context. So that's that's an important piece to, to think about. And, and one other thing is that resilience isn't sort of an event, right? We want to be kind of living resilience as a mindset, as a lifestyle, that sort of thing, really integrating the things that are going to make us the most resilient out there in the world into our day-to-day, into our way of being. I love that, Dr. Kate. And you you actually took the next question right out of my mouth. So I think we're we're vibing. We're on the same wavelength right now. I was, the next question I was going to ask you is what isn't resilience? And what I heard you say just there is that resilience is not one size fits all, that it's um, that it's about where we are, so it's relevant to us, but it's not necessarily like universal. And you also said that resilience is not an event. It's more of a lifestyle um, than an event. It's more of a, I, you didn't say practice, but it seems like it's a, it's a mindset, it's a practice, it's something that we enter into. Can you tell us a little bit more about what we tend to get wrong when we talk about resilience, at least in the ways that you tend to hear people talking about it today, and maybe when you get asked about it as well? 
Sure. Yeah. You know, just that, you know, resilience is something that comes about when there's a challenge, when something goes wrong. And that's not really the full story, right? Because as we're integrating these tools, strategies, tactics into our day-to-day lives, into our mindsets, to be resilient, quote unquote, such that we can live our potential, move through and beyond challenge towards our potential all the time. You know, easier said than done. And of course, there are moments when we're going to be less resilient than others. Um, But we really want to be careful not to look at resilience as, you know, a one size fits all or a single event in time. We want to really make it more of a um, a, a lifestyle, uh, kind of a, a, a broader concept that we're integrating into our life all the time. Yeah, and, and there is that factor, Dr. Kate, that I'm hearing in, in your description about the importance of mindset. And I do agree, I think we can all agree that mindset is really important for, for many things in life. Um, I find myself, I always get a little bit reluctant about maybe like overstating the importance of mindset or maybe falsely attributing or over attributing mindset as like the be all end all, especially because I know for me personally, coming from some like self-help circles in the past and that, that have tended towards like toxic positivity, treating mindset as everything and saying like the only thing that that it, that will make the difference in changing your whole life and the whole world around you is your mindset. In some cases, I feel like, well, that mindset does have to, to change, right? But also I worry about overstating the importance of mindset if it discounts or neglects incorporating um, factors like systems and circumstances and disparities and inequities. And I wonder if a wor- if you share a worry like mine when we talk about mindset and resilience, is it is it valid when we're talking about resilience as a whole, or is it something that you you don't really fear overstating for different reasons, especially because of your experience in coming from this with a, a the clinical psychologist point of view? Yeah, you know what, Dave, I, I completely agree with you. You know, I, I think we need to be careful not to put our focus, our emphasis ever on just one thing. So where mindset is a really important part of the equation. Sure, mindset, very, very important. Just as this idea of managing our stress response so that, you know, we're kind of starting from a more modulated space in terms of our emotional uh, response to when challenges hit. We don't want to be starting up here such that when a challenge hits, you know, we escalate to the point of shutdown. We really want to be working to modulate that stress response. So that's, you know, really important along with mindset, along with, you know, our circumstances, our experiences, the way that we're processing our experiences, processing through our experiences. And as you mentioned, systems, you know, what are the systems that we're a part of? How are those impacting sort of our experience of the challenge or our experience out there in the world in general? And then you're right. Equities, inequities, that's a part of the puzzle as well, as are, you know, many other things. So I totally agree that we can't put our emphasis on just one thing, and mindset is included in that. 
Thank you for that explanation. It's very helpful. Um, so Dr. K, I know that your relationship, your personal relationship and your experience with resilience started at a quite early age. I believe it was around the age of four that you were diagnosed with something called hydrocephalus. Could you explain to our listeners who, who may not be aware of what hydrocephalus is, what, what this condition is and what it meant for you in your young life? Right. Absolutely. It's a great question. So as you mentioned, I was diagnosed with hydrocephalus when I was four. And what that essentially is, is it's when the uh, cerebral spinal fluid isn't circulating through the ventricles of your brain as it should, such that then pressure builds up on the brain and, you know, you get headaches, you're dizzy, you've got nausea, you're throwing up uncontrollably, sometimes in the middle of the night. These were all things that I was experiencing as a very young child. And it was baffling to my parents, to the doctors. You know, I'd been a very healthy toddler up to that point. And so it was really hard to understand. And in that moment in the, in the 1970s, when this was all unfolding, the imaging technology wasn't as it is today. So it took a really long time to kind of figure out exactly what was going on. But fortunately, I had some really good doctors, some astute clinicians who figured it out. And I got something called a shunt put in. And that's what manages hydrocephalus um, for folks who have the condition. It actually circulates the spinal fluid that isn't circulating on its own. And so you know, it was, it was a really hard, hard situation for a young child, for my parents. And what it meant was that, you know, shunts are great when they work, but the problem is they break. So it meant a lot of time in and out of the hospital, shunt revisions, coming back to school, looking different, feeling different, a lot of getting up back up to speed academically, socially, all of these things. So yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a challenge for sure. And looking back, I mean, and lasted throughout, you know, throughout time. I mean, I still have a shunt to be honest. And so, you know, it, it's, um, it's one of those things that definitely was the catalyst for my interest in becoming a psychologist, my interest, my passion in this idea of resilience and what helps us to move through and beyond challenge. And, and really my focus on studying that and helping others to move through and beyond various challenges you know, everyone coming at challenge from a different place, no experience within challenge, within hydrocephalus, within anything is the same. But this big idea of how can we move through and beyond it as best as we can within our own unique context is the, is the key. Do you have a lot of clear memories from that time, despite being so young? You know, I, I, I do. I think the memories, the clear memories start to emerge more in kind of middle elementary school, you know, that kind of thing. I think my, my most clear memories of the early medical stuff was around the age of 10 when I had a, a bit of a medical setback with um, the shunt breaking and assist developing and I needed actually a second shunt put in. And it was a really, really, um, again, difficult scenario to diagnose and get a handle on. Um, but it was a very, very prolonged absence from school. And it was at a very pivotal time, right? 10, 11, peers aren't necessarily that open to or accepting of individual difference. And so there was a lot of challenge around that kind of thing. Um, academically, I felt very, very far behind. Um, and had to, had to catch up, but th there was good in it in that I really got the memo early about the need to overcompensate on the academic front for challenge, right? And so that really helped me out in the long term 
when my baseline was to work really, really hard at things, particularly when they didn't come easily. And there was a lot that didn't come easily, but that helped me get over that hump, compensate for the challenges and probably end up farther ahead than I would have otherwise been. That's really interesting. So it sounds like despite the fact that you would fall behind in school and you had some um, challenging experiences socially as a young person. So it sounds like your your psychosocial development was kind of thwarted because of resulting from the medical conditions that you were dealing with and having to get through. And it sounds like was your was your response to then like like as you said overcompensate to become like a, a high achiever to be striving for like you know A pluses on every test and 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 standing out for all those ways that um, you. Did you feel compelled like you like you that was the only way to prove yourself when you were young? Well, you know, that's that's an interesting question. I think there may have been a little bit of that, but the the truth is, the reality is I didn't get A pluses on everything despite my very hard work. Um there was a point where, you know, that was happening, but then, you know, things got a little bit more challenging as, as they do academically, um, moving into middle, middle school and, and that sort of thing. And so what I really learned, Dave, from all of this early on was to do the best that I could within my own unique context. And so we all have strengths. We all have weaknesses or relative challenges, as I like to call them. And those became quite clear to me early on. Uh, I was very, very good in English, in writing, in those types of subjects, loved the social sciences like psychology and that kind of thing. The math and harder sciences, despite my real belief at the age of like six or seven that I was going to be a pediatrician. I mean, I really was going to be a pediatrician, but things went a little bit off, off course academically because math just for whatever reason, it wasn't lining up in my, in my brain. And so, you know, I worked as hard as I could, but I was certainly not getting A pluses. And I, I definitely sort of shifted the trajectory of where I focused my attention academically and otherwise. I think that's really one of the reasons that I was led towards psychology, but, you know, I was, I was driven to work hard. I knew I needed to sort of work harder than perhaps my peers to get to the same place, but that helped me long term because I was still working harder and then ended up farther ahead in the areas where, you know, I was most adept and most passionate. And so I mm-hmm. think that's that's an important um, piece to, to mention in that. The other thing that was really, really fortunate for me is that I was able to focus on tennis as something that was you know, um, a strength, a passion. And that was really encouraged because there were a ton of sports I couldn't do because if I got hit in the head, I'd be in trouble. And so tennis became a passion early on and really became a point of social connection, a point of connection in general, and a point that allowed me to really build my sense of self. But I'm going to mention again, I I didn't always win. I, I have lots of second place trophies. I rarely won actually. And that was okay. Like I was, I love, I was out there playing and I loved it. And I know that sounds kind of like cliche, but it actually was true for me because I had those moments where I couldn't play, where I couldn't do Mm. anything. Right. I was maybe stuck in bed or something. And Mm. so that's why 
the meaning was so great in in there and and I got pretty good but I I wasn't you know I wasn't the best by any means and it was it was hard yeah it sounds like your your the the experiences you had with hydrocephalus gave you a great sense of perspective and wisdom at a at a quite young age I'm wondering also too what kinds of support you had as a child who was dealing with these experiences what kind of uh, community support what what were your parents and caregivers like and I I do ask this not only because I'm I'm nosy and curious but because we're going to be talking a little bit about what it means to be a parent and a caregiver to kids and helping to nurture resilience in kids, despite the fact that I personally am not a parent. I know you are of twin boys. And we'll talk with, you know, for some of our listeners who are parents or caregivers as well. What was your support system like when you were that age? Right. You know, it was, it was great. I was really, really fortunate. My parents were incredibly supportive, um, obviously managed through all of those hard medical moments one thing that they they did that I, I'm really grateful for and I think really helped me that I didn't realize at the time, but I, I realize it now, they didn't dwell on the condition I had, but rather really focused on the person that I was, the kid that I was, and really helped me to focus on the things I could do as opposed to the things I couldn't do. And I think that's really key because if we had been dwelling all the time, you know, in the moments when my shunt was working and all these things about all of the things that could go wrong or had gone wrong or would go wrong again, probably that probably would have really held me back in a lot of ways. And so my parents really focused on, you know, what I could do, you know, and had expectations for me too. You know, I wasn't that sick kid in the corner, you know, I had to pull my weight at home. I had to, you know, do the same chores my brother had to do. I had to, you know, take care of things around the house. There were expectations, you know, and the expectation to do as well as I could academically and otherwise within my own unique context. It was just sort of expected, went without saying. And that I think was a really powerful and positive thing for me. Also had support from parents of friends, you know, Um, had a lot of friends who were very supportive of me, despite the you know, some of the social challenges that, that existed just, you know, it wasn't, I think, overt meanness. I, th- I just think kids didn't understand. And when kids don't understand, you know, that sort of bullying piece can come about. But beyond that, I had really good friends, really supportive friends, and I was really lucky in that way. And that helped to, to foster, you know, a belief in myself, a belief in possibility. And I, I really do believe helped me get through the, those hard moments. Yeah. And so you would go on to enter into the field of pediatric medical psychology. Tell me about those experiences and what you started to learn in working with young people and and having your own personal experiences, um, given your medical condition, um, experiencing the power of mindset, experiencing what it is to be resilient. What did you start to witness and learn um, in the experience of working with young people, especially, and understanding how their how their little minds work, right? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, you know, my own experiences really served and serve today as a as a foundation in my mind. You know, I'm not out there, you know, sharing my experiences with my young patients or their families or anything like that. Um, you know, but really did serve as a good foundation, but. You know, early on in my in my career, you know, I really noticed the strength, the fortitude in these families and really tried to focus on the ways that I could help to 
bolster that, particularly when I was working with parents. One of my early training experiences was at um, the Shriners Hospital for Children in Boston. And a lot of that work entailed working with parents whose kids were not conscious yet post-injury. You know, they were still in perhaps a medically induced um, uh, coma or situation where they needed to be in that place to start their healing journey. So it was a question Mm -hmm. of really, you know, processing what had happened with the, with the families, with the parents, and, and then ultimately doing that with the kids as they were in the rehabilitation phase of recovery from their illness. So, I mean, from their injuries. And so, you know, really the, the strength, the underlying strength that came out in many of those situations, I'd say most of them, um, was quite powerful and very inspiring um, to me. And yeah, that was one of the big things that I noticed. And just a question of, you know, learning and trying to figure out how to help these folks move back, create a new sense of normal, despite these catastrophic injuries that had happened. Yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, I can't imagine the circumstances, you know, being, being in those circumstances and working with parents and starting to help the parents like process something, come to grips with something, their child is still maybe, you know, not, not even out of, not, not even in the clear yet, right? They're still very actively healing from a, a traumatic injury, but not just waiting around for the healing process to be an eventuality or something that's assumed to happen later, but, but being involved in the process from an early start. And what it, did you learn? Yeah. Balancing the reality of what is, right? Because we always have to be mm-hmm. very cognizant, very aware of the actual challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Never want to like circumvent the challenge and pretend, you know, so helping the parents to balance that reality of what was in terms of what what is this injury? What are the implications? That sort of thing. But then kind of looking at, you know, what's possible you know, in terms of longer term, really trying to understand through the eyes of the parents up front, who their child is, you know, what are their strengths, you know, that kind of thing. And then thinking about ways to help use those strengths in bolstering that emotional psychological recovery over time. Mm -hmm. And that's, that was a really important piece of it as well. Yeah. I imagine you were doing a lot of real-time active grief work with parents too, in the sense that uh, this was this was new learning for me in my own graduate school career, but grief takes on many forms and forms of mourning and loss aren't always or only about loss of life as in through death, but loss of like stories and experiences, expectations of who kids, you know, in this case, who kids like might have been or could be. Did you find yourself working with grief with those parents as they were acclimating to the reality of something that had changed or even the possibility that their child may be forever affected by their, that accident? Yeah, absolutely. That was certainly a piece, I would say, of a majority of the work, you know, sort of processing through the loss of what was or what could have been. But then within that process, and this is easier said than done, takes a long time to unfold, but helping parents to embrace a sense of new normal, 
you know, and create that. And it's, it's certainly not an A plus B equals C equation. You know, it's, it's looks different for everybody and for every case. And of course takes time to unfold, but I would say sort of balancing both sides of that, um, equation or both of those things was, was paramount in most, most of the situations I found myself in. Yeah. So changing gears somewhat, Kate, I want to ask you about something I've heard you teach. I've heard you share in your TEDx talk and other interviews doing research for our conversation. And you've said something quite interesting about why it's wrong to push kids to be extraordinary or to be constantly doing and constantly achieving and striving for new levels of achievement. Now, these are things that I, I grew up as a, as a millennial um, being told that we were the most special thing <laughs> that ever existed and that we could be whatever we wanted to be. And, and I'm hearing in what you've taught that there's something that is maybe misguided to uh, encourage kids to be something other than ordinary. And even saying that, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm committing a sin. Like I'm saying something that's so un-American to suggest that kids ought to be or feel ordinary. Can you explain for our listeners um, what it is about this dynamic? Like how you explain the difference between ordinary and extraordinary and how you've said that you encourage people, you encourage young people to find the uh, to find to, to find the ordinary out of the extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, what I mean by this is that we want kids to find their best within their own unique context. And so we really don't want to be always pushing them to do more and to be more and all of that, you know, in this culture of winning. I mean, there are a lot of, lot of sort of points embedded in this whole idea, but ultimately what we really want for kids, kids with challenge, kids without challenge, well, the kind of challenge that, that, you know, we're talking medical or, or physical here, um, you know, to find their best within their own unique context that's authentic to them, right? And that takes time. And it's a process that has to unfold. And we can't be afraid sort of within this context to allow our kids to, you know, not succeed out of the gate or not come in first. That's all. That's okay. You know, if that child is doing their very best within their own unique context, we need to celebrate that, you know, and that's really at the core of what, I'm talking about there and what I was, the point that I, I made in my TEDx really derived from my own experience, right? Um, with really never finishing first, but doing the best that I possibly could within my own unique context, which was still really good, relatively speaking. But, mm. you know, that that whole piece, we don't always have to be in that extraordinary category to be doing really well. And we want our kids to embrace who they are authentically within their own unique context. Yeah, that phrase unique, their own unique context, it, it rings in my ears. This is, I think, the third time I've heard you say it. And I want to come back to that because it feels really important. So what I'm hearing, Dr. Kate, is the emphasis on, on healthy growth and development for young people seems to be to instill in them to remind them that it's all relative and that there it's not um well i i suppose the the, the message and the mission 
seems like it would imply that it helps to normalize differences and create more acceptance of like where we are in comparison to others without everything being a competition. And would you say that that's correct? Is that what I'm, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good way of putting it for sure. Yeah. And we really, we, we want to embrace this idea of difference, you know, individual difference. And we want to help our kids to appreciate the differences among us, you know, and not tear others down as a result of those differences and not always be trying to be better than, but rather be focusing more on, okay, you know, I'm going to work as hard as I can within my own unique context, using my strengths to achieve as much as I can in my area of passion, aptitude, et cetera. Right. But it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't always have to be about competing. We really want to be formulating this internal locus of control, which will then help us to connect in positive ways with those around us to form strong social relationships. All of those things will be better and more possible if we're not in that mindset of competing, beating, being better than. Yeah, that's so interesting. So Dr. Kate, let's talk about uh, teaching resilience to kids in 2023 and beyond. So I, I mentioned before we hit record that I don't have kids of my own. I'm very lucky to have a lot of viewpoints uh, of, of peers um, who are parents of young children of a variety of ages, family members who have kids of a variety of ages. Plenty of our listeners are going to be parents. Plenty of our listeners may be future parents, um, and all of us have you know relationships in some way, shape, or form to young people uh, as a whole. And it strikes me as being particularly important to remember that even if we don't have kids of our own, that we are elders, right? We are elders to young people that we can model certain things for them, and we can be um, contributors. Contributors. I, that my Rhode Island accent just came out there and contributors uh, to to the lives of young people. Uh, so let's start with this question. How do we teach kids how to manage emotions and tolerate frustrations without policing like every one of their feelings or reactions or emotions? How, how, I, know, I, know, I know what you're going to say, which is it's all relative, <laughs> but I'm also curious about, <laughs> I'm also curious that there are general like guidelines or things when it comes to like adults helping kids to manage their emotions and tolerate frustrations. Can you tell us what comes to mind for you? Yeah, absolutely. And so the the first thing that comes to mind is is that we really want to be teaching our kids or those we work with from a very early point to manage their stress response. So I know the listeners can't see my hand, but if we're if we're starting up here from sort of an unmodulated stress response space where we're already heightened and a challenge hits and we escalate, you know, to the point of of shutdown, that's not going to be helpful. For, for anyone, right? And it's not going to help that child to move through and beyond the challenge. So we want to be instilling in our kids, and this again is not a one size fits all, but helping them to incorporate into their day to day some sort of a way to quiet their mind, manage their stress response, generally speaking, you know, even when not faced with a challenge, so that when a challenge hits, they're more equipped to deal with it. And so you know, we can be teaching really young kids, you know, very simple breathing techniques, you know, with those bubble wands, you know, just to sort of help them find that quiet space. 
you know, getting kids outside in nature is really helpful as kids get a little older, you know, helping them um, sort of incorporate or learn very basic rudimentary visualization skills or breathing techniques that help them to quiet their minds, bring that stress response into a more managed, modulated space. As kids get into sort of pre-adolescence, adolescence, you know, maybe setting them up with an app on their phone because sometimes they don't want to kind of generate this stuff from the inside out. So, you know, we'll, we'll use an app maybe, and that can be really, really helpful. I've had great success stories with the app Headspace, for example. Um, one of my own boys uses Headspace and it's, it's really quite powerful how that helps him to bring that stress response into a managed space. So that's really, really important in terms of managing emotions, tolerating frustration. Other thing, super important for parents or for those of us who, who work with kids to model how we're doing this in our own lives. You know, if a challenge arises and it's obvious, you know, we want to be able to move through that challenge in front of our kids or even better, we want to share experiences, past experiences with our kids of challenges that we've hit and how we've managed through them just as a way of kind of um, uh, reinforcing that authentic, open relationship and conversation that we can have and I believe we should have with our kids, you know, in a developmentally appropriate way. So those are, those are the two main things that come to mind. Yeah. Well, I love that you just specified there, Dr. Kate, that something that being developmentally appropriate, can you explain what that means uh, to a psychologist such as yourself um, for those who, who may be unfamiliar with the term? What does that mean? Sure. So yeah, developmentally appropriate, you know, we don't want to be um, trying to engage in a full-blown adult to adult conversation with a three-year-old, right? As we're trying to explain why it's important to manage our stress response, all that stuff. We can't do that with a three-year-old. So we want to sort of model very basic techniques, like maybe with a bubble wand or, you know, um, going outside and taking exaggerated deep breaths or, or what have you. So that would be sort right. of an example of something very simple that we would do with a very young child. And as the developmental continuum progresses, you know, we can kind of add in and things can become more complex, more multi-step, that sort of thing. So mm. it's really a question of looking at where the kid is, where the child is, and what their capacity is to understand and integrate information and sort of tailor our communication or our strategies accordingly. Does that does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I just, I've, I've always find conversations around what is developmentally appropriate to be so important. And it was like my first crash course in human growth and development and the biopsychosocial model to be so expansive to my own understanding of like, oh, it makes sense. Like instinctively, we understand that, like you said, in the example, you wouldn't hand like, you wouldn't hand like an adult book to a five or a seven-year-old and expect them to read it, process it, and understand what's in it, just like you wouldn't have a kid that age, you know, watch uh, a mature television show or a rated R movie. So it's about finding the the right tools. And I feel like a lot of parents figure this out very instinctively, not to say that they're not actually actively researching it and learning it um, through outside resources and resources like yourself, Dr. Kate, but it seems like there's a knowledge there of what is developmentally appropriate as a kid grows and ages. 
but it just it does seem um, really important to remember that not everything is relevant to every child, even at the same age. It depends on where they are individually with their development too, right? Absolutely, yes, because you know development really does unfold in very individual ways. I mean, sure, there's like a general expectation for what's developmentally appropriate, but, you know, kids will develop at their own rate. And, you know, I can share an example right here from our own house. We have um, 15-year-old twin boys, and one of them, you know, developed more quickly than the other in various areas, um, academically, uh, socially, sort of social, emotional understanding. But I'll tell you what, the one who developed a little bit more slowly in those areas has caught up beautifully and, you know, is really in line with his twin at this point as freshman in high school. So there really is a continuum with which development unfolds. Yeah, absolutely. And so going back to that question I had earlier, Dr. Kate, I heard you say in response that helping kids to manage a baseline stress level, like overall, seems like it's a really good and healthy thing to do, as well as providing them with tools, resources, and and being a resource oneself through modeling, but also being a support system to help kids manage their stress response, doing things like you said, like quieting the mind, access to nature, um, using like a, I heard like a mindfulness, mind body breathing techniques, like the use of the bubble wands can be helpful. So it does sound like overall baseline stress level, helping kids with that, which I imagine is a lot easier said than done these days with all the yes. sources of like stimulus and anxiety that come up today. Um, oh, yeah. yeah tell, tell me a little bit about that. What comes to mind for you when you think about that baseline stress level? Have, have you seen kids overall generally having a harder time with their baseline stress levels, especially in light of the pandemic and lockdowns and things like that affecting their development? Yeah, you know, there there are a lot of stressors out there, right? And, you know, again, there's not a one size fits all, you know, it really depends on, you know, so many factors, what is the support system? Where what is their environment? So I, I found that lots of the kids who had a really, really hard time during the, the lockdown may not have had, you know, the same level of social support, or maybe were you know, in, in different places developmentally, had a harder time engaging in online school, that sort of thing. That was a reality for many kids. On the other side of that coin, you know, some kids were developmentally in a space where they really could engage in the online school piece and were able to find alternative ways to connect with friends and that sort of thing. And so wasn't as big a hit, right? Um, But, you know, globally speaking, this idea of social media, of constantly having, you know, uh, electronics in, in our midst, as well as in the midst of our kids, I think that is a huge piece, a huge factor that drives a lot of the rise in anxiety that we're seeing, distractibility, um, difficulty being present in the moment, that mm-hmm. sort of thing, and really trying to make a conscious effort to shift gears on that, help our kids to shift gears on that, again, through modeling as parents and, you know, as folks who, you know, have uh, influence or exposure with kids is really, really important. You know, how yeah. can we model 
the move away from all of the technology easier said than done because technology is such an integral part of what our kids are doing but it's a it's a it's a fine balance yeah i I don't know how parents do it parents out there who are listening i give you a lot of credit um even though i tend to be a i would say not the like a bad influence on your kids in terms of how I kind of revert to being a, a huge child in their presence and, and sometimes uh, encourage them to do things that I don't know that parents don't appreciate, like eat a lot of candy or run around the house because I think that that's fun and I do it with them. But anyway, uh, Dr. Kate, I want to give you the last word here. This is a question I like to ask our guests from time to time. It's kind of big, it's kind of broad, but I want to see what comes up for you. Um, you know, this is a show called The New Story Is. We we kind of suggest that um, there are certain stories we'd like to see become more entrenched or more a part of the world today, socially or culturally. So for you, based on our conversation, talking about resilience, helping kids to develop resilience, helping ourselves to become more resilient, um, what are you hoping to see the new story become around resilience moving forward, whether that's for, you know, people at large, whether for parents and caregivers or kids themselves, what comes up for you? Yeah, that is such a great question. And I think that the thing that comes up for me, you know, most readily is this idea of possibility and, you know, the ability to see the possibility out there in front of us, despite challenge and doing that as parents, as caregivers, as educators, and then helping our kids to do the same. So seeing possibility on the other side of challenge is, is what comes up. Mm, possibility on the other side of challenge. I really like that invocation. Thank you, Dr. Kate. Dr. Kate Lund, she's a licensed clinical psychologist. You can listen to Dr. Kate's podcast, The Optimized Mind, wherever you get podcasts. And you can find Dr. Kate, her TEDx talk, which we discussed earlier, and much more at katelundspeaks.com. That's Kate, K-A-T-E, L-U-N-D, speaks.com. Dr. Kate, thank you so much for joining us uh, for the education and for the work that you do. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dave. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. Please rate and review our show, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help other listeners find our show and know that it's truly worth listening to. We work real hard to bring you these interviews. We hope you've been enjoying the new content we've been delivering up to you weekly. Stick around, stay tuned for more interviews coming down the pike. Until next time, dear listener, thank you for listening. Story on.